Well, um, one of probably my most embarrassing moments uh, in my high school career was uh, during my sophomore English class. I was assigned, as all of us were, uh, a 10 to 15 minute speech on a historical figure. I was excited to be the first one to go. So I, sat up, I stood up there and I gave what I thought was a great speech. And uh, the class period bell rang as I was on like my third or fourth point. You see, I had taken up all 55 minutes of my 10 to 15 minute speech. Hopefully I do a much better job this morning for all of you. Um, so I will try to be as strong and, uh, as, uh, and do the best I can in being uh, you know, precise and quick through many of my points. But let's go ahead and pray right now. Lord, I pray that you still my soul and produce and meet your words. May our study this morning Bring about an understanding of your truth. Let us feel the conviction that only your word can truly provide. Lord, ultimately, I pray that, that our affections can be stirred toward you as a result of our time in Psalm 51 this morning. Amen. So as you're turning to Psalm 51, just know, if you are new around here, we do post things on the screen, but we love to have our Bibles open as well. This is a psalm of lament. It's really more of a psalm of confession over David's personal sin. Now, this sin that is being referred to here, it's kind of in that superscript right there, that little title. This is a rated R level sin. This is about as bad as things can get. And it's quite hard to believe that David could have been someone who finds himself in this type of sin. I mean, after all, I, I mean, this is kind of this, this cautionary tale of, of someone who allows besetting sin to be left unaddressed and to get worse and worse and worse and worse until you're, you're capable of doing something that you never thought you would ever do. But, you know, David, David's a rags to riches story. He started off as a shepherd boy and becomes king of Israel. David's that guy that when everybody else was shaking in their army, as the Israelite army is facing the, the Philistines, he looks at Goliath and says these very words, you come against me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. That's kind of faith this guy had. He's also faithful to a jealous king. Saul's trying to kill him because he's jealous of him, and he stays loyal to the king. This is the same David that's finding himself in this type of sin. See, David was a successful military leader. He was an extremely good statesman. He was highly regarded by the people of Israel for his moral and upright behavior. And yet he finds himself in the midst of despair. Because the reality is, is David sins because of the same reason that we sin. And that's because our hearts wander. Because we lack the ability to fully trust that God's best for us is more pleasing than the fleeting pleasure that's in front of our faces each and every moment. The reality is, is that Psalm 51 is not just for David. It's for you and it's for me. Perhaps your besetting sin prevailed once more this week. Psalm 51 is a message for you. Maybe you've put your faith on autopilot over the past month. Perhaps you're in a position where you're sitting in this room for the very first time in many, many weeks. Or maybe this is the first time you've read in God's word all the entire time this week. If that's you, Psalm 51, thank God, is for you this morning. 
Perhaps you're sitting here in your seat and you can't think of a single thing you've done wrong. You think you're pretty good. I'm going to tell you right now, the convicting aspects of Psalm 51 are definitely for you. And then I can't help but think of maybe the person who's sitting in a seat this morning and they're just kind of test driving Christianity. They're trying to see if somehow there's a sign or something that they can hear or take part of and, and, and have a sense that maybe this Christianity thing does have some kind of benefit to a person in our postmodern time and our advanced culture that we live in. Psalm 51 is most definitely for you. So our main point this morning is we examine this amazing and very popular and well-known psalm is that contrition, confession, repentance, and restoration are the agents of grace God uses to clean our hearts. Now, if you know anything about me, I really love to have things very organized. That has a lot to do with the fact that if I wasn't organized, my world would fall apart. And so, I am going to examine these four aspects. I believe that that's what David is doing here in each of these different stanzas. And the first stanza is talking about contrition. Contrition is best defined as a crushed and broken heart as a result of our personal sin. David speaks of these in the first two verses. I'm going to go ahead and read God's word. You can follow along with me. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now, as we just think about the definition and read this and kind of think of a, a bigger picture of what contrition is, we really are faced with two realities. It is necessary and good for us to feel pain when we are crushed or broken. It indicates that something is wrong and that something needs to be done to fix it. Uh, well, this summer, uh, my family and I, we've been taking a lot of different camping trips, and sometimes we splurge on a little adventure. And at Indian Lake, we, uh, we rented a very large pontoon boat with a big motor, and uh, we did tubing, and uh, we brought some family members along. One of those people was my mother, and she was enjoying We had a great day, but she stood up very quickly and slipped on the floor of the boat, of the pontoon boat. And as she slipped her foot hit the side of one of the seats, and she broke her ankle. It was very visible. It was dislocated, looked horrible. Um, and I'll tell you, the first thing that I did as I stood up, and I just wanted to make sure she was okay, but I didn't sit there and say, Mom, you know, it's really good that your ankle is broken and you feel the pain of that, because that's an indication that something's wrong and, and it needs to get fixed. <laughs> no, I did not. I, I very quickly realized that it's also, this is our second realization, is that it is very dangerous to leave something broken or crushed. It requires acute and prescriptive care in order for it to heal properly. And that is very, very true when we feel the sense of being crushed or broken by our sin. So there are three observations we can look at in this first stanza of this psalm. The first is that we see that David himself, who is the author of this psalm, he makes known his sin 
And we see that in the superscription. Something that's very interesting to note is that all other parts of the Bible, when you see these little titles over top of major sections of a passage, they're very similar to that of the chapter numbers and the verse numbers. They're actually not part of the original written like what the writer wrote. They're not what we would call part of the inspired word of God. But in the psalm, that's different. The psalms, those superscriptions are actually written by the authors, and therefore they are just as profitable for teaching as any other part of God's word. And so when we see this, we can see that David makes known his sin for any reader to read and know about. Why is it critical for us to make our sin known? Well, we're going to see throughout this whole entire psalm that it starts this process. First, it prevents future or worse sin of the same kind. By getting it out in the open, it's no longer hidden, and therefore it can be examined. It can be corrected. Second is that it helps others to see their own sin. It's important for us to confess with others so that therefore self-examination within them is also possible. And most importantly, it breaks the chain of enslavement to sin. When we cover sin, it continues to be something that clouds our vision, our ability to have relationship with God. In order to have restoration, which is ultimately what David is going to speak of in this psalm, we must first start with being broken and making known our sin. There are some things to avoid, though, when we make known our sin. The first is we need to avoid romanticizing our sin. We also need to avoid excusing our sin. Notice that David is very, very succinct in how he expresses this. We can see this whole entire story played out in 1 Samuel. But David, when he writes this psalm, is very succinct. He looks at two different aspects of his sin. First, he says, I would not have admitted it unless it was one of God's prophets that brought it to my attention. And the second is, is that he recognizes that he had this desire for something that wasn't his, and he took it, and that it led to the harm of many. The next thing we see is in verses 1 and 2, and he compares God's perfect character to his imperfect character. Notice the two aspects of God's character that David looks at, his unfailing love and his abundant mercy. I think he does this because it helps David to understand a contrast between him and God. The Bible defines love as being patient, kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. We get that out of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 8. In comparison to God's love, David is an adulterer and a murderer. He's a murderer of an upright man. A man that was loyal to him. Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, was one of David's mighty men of valor who stood by his side while Saul was attacking him and trying to kill him. But that didn't matter to David. He wanted his needs to be met. And that's why I think we see this idea of mercy being the next character of God that is contrasted to David. Mercy is defined as the willingness to offer forgiveness and withhold punishment. But what does David do? He chooses self-preservation when he's faced initially with his sin. He chooses to allow his sin to continue to harm others in even a worse fashion. Finally, 
David defines his sin. He uses three different terms. Now, when you read through that, you might think that that was just a really clever way of seeming educated and using different synonyms when you see all these different terms like sin, iniquity, and transgression. But each of these is being translated from a different Hebrew word that has very different connotations and meaning. The first, where we see sin as the word that's translated in this passage, it means to miss the goal. It's the idea of there being a target kind of missed the target or the goal of my time limit when I gave my speech my sophomore year in that English class, didn't I? That's the idea, is that there's a target, and every time we throw it, we miss the bullseye. Well, then the next thing that we might do is the term iniquity, which describes distorting what is good. Well, instead of saying, I can't hit that target very well, we change the target to make ourselves look better. It gets a little bit even worse than that. Scripture indicates that what we have done is we've traded worship of the Creator, and instead we worship the creature. And there are all sorts of things that come from that. But one of those is the term transgression. Transgression is the idea of violating trust, turning our back on something, or betrayal. It really has a connotation of like a spouse saying to his, his spouse, you don't satisfy me any longer, and so therefore I'm going to find something else or someone else that will. It's a break of covenant. So we've looked at David's contrition, but we don't need to sit there. David also shows confession. Once again, our main point was that contrition, confession, repentance, and restoration are the agents of God's grace that he uses to clean us, to clean our hearts. So the definition of confession is the acknowledgement of sinfulness. Not just this particular sin, but sin in general that affects our lives. And we see that in verses 3 through 6. I'm going to go ahead and read those. You can follow along. For I know my transgressions and my sin are ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So as we come to this concept of confession, there's a reality that we must recognize right off the bat, and that is that confession is more than simply stating the wrong we've committed. It involves recognizing the impact and the totality of our sin. So let's look at three observations from the text. The first is in verse 3. We see that David's betrayal is constantly in his face. That term that is used there ever before me literally means in front of my face all the time. It's the idea that there is nothing that I can see without seeing that. That's the reality of our sin. There is no such thing as sin without consequences. And, there, and if sin is left unconfessed, it will cloud your vision and torment your soul regularly. The next thing we see is in verse 4 that he recognizes the cosmic reality of his sin. This is really a hard portion of this passage to really understand. I think a lot of people, when they come to this, they, they look at it, I feel this way, even after understanding it to some degree, against you, you only have I sinned. And you're thinking, dude, come on, how did this get inspired? <laughs> because you've sinned far more. You've harmed far more than just God alone. Think of everyone that David harmed. He used a woman for his physical pleasure. 
He killed the man in whom she was committed to. He was a disgrace before all of Israel and the position that he had as the king. He harmed many. But what David's getting to is if we understand that term sin, is he's saying, I sinned against you, meaning you're the one who has the right to make the goal and set it. You are the one who has the right and authority to determine the, the difference between good and evil, right and wrong. It is your standard that is good and right, and I broke it. So David is not making less of the harm he inflicted on others, but is instead making much of his relationship with God and the harm he has done to it. R.C. Sproul refers to this as cosmic treason, punishable by death. The third thing we can observe here in verses 5 and 6 is that David recites truth from God's Word. We need to get biblical about our sin. This is where doctrine is beautiful and necessary. Notice here that David talks about this, this idea of human beings since the fall having inherited both the guilt and sin nature of Adam. You see that idea of it being passed down from one generation to another, inheriting it? So he was born into iniquity. He's born with this ability to just distort things and make them what he wants them to be. This doesn't mean that every person is as sinful as they could possibly be. It just means that we are total in our depravity. And, and it came from what we would call, or theologians would refer to as original sin from Adam. Another way of understanding this is the way in which Dane Ortland writes, and he says, All our weakness, indeed all of our life, is tainted with sin. If sin were the color blue, we do not occasionally say or do something blue. All that we say, do, and think has some taint of blue. I think that's a great way of understanding it. I would go a step further and just make sure that we understand that the Bible doesn't call our sin this taint of blue. It says that it's unclean. And that's why we need our hearts to be cleaned. And the next thing he does is he looks at something that's beautiful about God. Beautiful from doctrine. And as he, he refers to the sufficiency of Scripture. You see that? See that where he talks about truth and wisdom? What is, he, what is he ascribing truth and wisdom to? God's word. God's instruction. He's saying that Scripture is sufficient in all things necessary for God's own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life. So we've looked at contrition and confession. And on our road map, in my organized fashion, we're now on repentance and restoration which are the agents of grace God uses to clean our hearts. Repentance is defined as turning away from sin and toward God. I'm going to go ahead and read verses 7 through 12. You can follow along. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you, you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and a renewed right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. There are two essential realities that we must face or recognize about repentance. 
First is, our sin must be addressed before we are capable of freely turning away. If that's, what, if that's what repentance is, is turning away from our sin, we need to realize that sin has a hold on us. We can't turn away from it unless there's something that will intervene. And then the next thing I think we often forget about repentance is when we are turning away from something, we are consequently turning towards something else. We must know what that thing is so that we know how to cast our gaze upon it, affixing it as best we can. So we have three observations from the text here when it comes to David's repentance. The first is found in verse 7. David understands that a sacrifice is necessary. This is the idea or the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. The blood of the innocent is used to wash away the stains of sin of the unclean. Remember I talked about that beforehand? Unclean, tarnished. We can relate to this understanding. See, whenever we go into anything that is like an important meeting or an interview or a date, we make sure we smell good. We make sure that our hands are clean. We're not passing disease to somebody else that would make them sick. We make sure that our, our clothes aren't soiled or wrinkled. The reality is, is that what when we come with our sin to a perfect and holy God, our sin makes us relationally repugnant before God. Our sin is disgusting to God. You see this idea of hyssop. Hyssop is a plant that was used to dip into the blood of a sacrifice and then sprinkle it on someone who is outwardly or ceremonially unclean. We see this in the Levitical law. This is the way in which God has established a relationship. He says, if you're unclean, this is the way in which I can do something, pay off your sin so that for you can be relationally non-repugnant. And so we see an example of that in many different aspects, but one that just seems to come up, if you're part of that Bible reading plan, just love those passages, I'm being very sarcastic here, about leprous disease. But the man or person with a leprous disease had to come to the priest and be sprinkled seven times, a number that represents perfection or wholeness, seven times, to be cleaned of that particular disease. He would have to take some time, pray, and then come back to the priest and be examined. David, though, if you look at the language here, he's not asking for a sprinkling. <laughs> he says, man, I need to be doused head to toe with the blood of a sacrifice because I don't just want this sin. I want every part of me to be cleansed. He expresses that by saying he wants to be made white as snow, which represents purity, no stains whatsoever. The next thing that we can see is in verse 8, that David professes, God's sovereignty over his sin. Do you see that? Do you see where he says that God was the one that broke his bones and he needs God to be the one that makes him rejoice? Do not allow this to pass over your understanding of this passage. Like a doctor resetting a fractured bone, it is God who breaks, God who sets, and God who heals. So our attitudes of being broken toward our sin, that is from God. The ability to break from our total depravity and confess our sin is from God and God alone. The resetting work of repentance and restoration, 
that is also from God. And the reason why it's so important for us to recognize that is that if we understand that all is supplied by God, then we can give all of our worship and glory to God and God alone. The next thing we see is that because God understands, or because David understands God's sovereignty, he is bold in asking for God's providence in verses 8 through 11. David requests full access to God and his Holy Spirit. In essence, he is asking to be reset with proper affections. That's what he's saying is, make my heart the type of heart that it should be, God. I want to want you. If you know me, I like to read The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer every year. And one of those passages that I think really does a great job of explaining this idea is written, I'll go ahead and read it to you here. O God, I have tasted thy goodness and has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I am painfully conscious of my need of further grace. I am ashamed of my lack of desire. O God, the triune God, I want to want thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show me thy glory, I pray thee, that so I may know thee indeed. Begin in me mercy, a new work of love within me. Say to my soul, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Then give me grace to rise and follow thee up from this. Man, they don't write like they used to, do they? <laughs> so we've looked at David's contrition, confession, repentance, and now we're going to examine restoration as the agents that God uses of grace to clean our hearts. Restoration is defined as returning to something, something to a former owner, place, position, or condition. And for the sake of time, because I want to hit that target as best I can, I'm going to ask that you look at your Bibles and, and read through 13 and 19 as I kind of break them down. But there, are a, there is a reality that we need to see here about restoration before we do that, and that what David is asking for is more than just forgiveness. What he's desiring is fully stored relationship, fully restored in all ways. In fact, he's not just asking for restored back to what it was before the sin that he committed with Bathsheba and all that then transpired. He's asking for a reset back to the beginning of time. He wants access to tree of lifestyle relationship. He wants full intimacy with God. And so, when you are totally infatuated with somebody, when you are fully in love with them, there are things that you do, especially right from the onset, when you are just wrapped up and infatuated with the intimacy of someone. It's really the language of a lover in, the, in these final verses. The first thing that you're going to do is you want to tell other people about your loved one. That's what we see in verse 13. He just wants to tell people. The next thing is that you sing and come up with artistic ways to express how much they satisfy you. Because just words aren't enough. That's verses 14 through 15. They seek to show appreciation for their lover by expressing their love in ways that their lover most enjoys and appreciates. Do you see that in verses 16 and 17? He really just wants God to enjoy his advances. And so he's trying to think of ways in which God would want that advance to be shown. And then the final and last thing, which I think our church is so great in preaching and helping us understand, 
is that when you love something and you're so infatuated with it in the way in which we, be, we should be in love with God, is that we want our gifts of sacrifice to not truly be seen as gifts of sacrifice or acts of sacrifice or duty. We want them to be seen as worship. That's verses 18 and 19. David wants to be restored in order that he might bear fruit in every good work, every good, satisfying expression of work, and increase in the deep and intimate knowledge of God. I think that's what Paul is getting to when he writes in 1 Colossians chapter 1. So I, before we end, I have two final thoughts. The first is more this is question, I think, that begs to be asked, that really should be kind of agonizing our hearts. You see, I think we love the idea of God being merciful and loving toward us in our sin when we're the sinner. But what about Uriah? Uriah's dead and his wife was taken and, he's been in, and she's now ha- is having someone else's child. And so David can just cheaply ask for God to restore intimacy, not just to go back to what once was, but to have what was from the beginning in the Garden of Eden? How can God justifiably work within David's heart? Contrition, confession, repentance, and redemption. Shouldn't he cast him away? I think the thing we need to understand is that God is far more offended than Uriah could ever be. Dirty means being relationally repugnant. Our sin makes us disgusting before God. The only way God can rightly bring about the sort of restoration in any of us is by providing a fair and right cleaning and a full and just payment for our sin, iniquities, and transgressions. Remember those terms? Let's break those down real quick here. Let's think about a man that comes who's fully God, fully man, some thousands of years after David writes this psalm. It comes to sin, missing the mark. Jesus comes and lives an earthly ministry that's all bullseyes. Perfect all the time. When we think of the term iniquities, distorting what is good, it is Jesus who says, when facing the cross the night before, not my will, but your will be done. When it comes to transgression, turning your back on something, it was Christ who freely accepted God, the Father, turning his face away from him as he took on our sin and was crushed for our sin, our iniquity, our transgressions. He was punished for our cosmic treason. But it's also Christ, and he climbed the tree of death. He also defeated it finally in order that in his resurrected body he could take us hand in hand and walk us into the access of the tree of life, restoring perfectly what once was. We now have access through Christ to the tree of life, which represents pure and perfect intimacy with God. So my final thought is, for the believer who feels defeated by your sin, Your contrition is a good work being done in you. Be thankful that you are crushed, but also recognize that it is dangerous to remain broken. Acute care and the restorative work of confession and repentance must be done within our hearts. 
We need to be healed. For the Christian whose faith is on autopilot, maybe you need to understand from this psalm that you've been given access to the tree of life, which yields eternal relationship with God, and eternity does not begin tomorrow. It begins right now in this moment. It is the hope that inspires forever our love affair with Christ the King. For the person who can't think of a single thing that they regret this week, let that be the cry of your heart and prayer this morning as we confess. Pray, make, my, make me thirsty, Lord. Make my sins known to me. Give me a heart that is broken over my iniquity, my desire to bend what is good to make myself look better. And the fun who is test-driving Christianity, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for coming into the space, which I know is probably kind of an uncomfortable space for you, and for examining that. But can I at least suggest one thing to you? And that is, is that we only test drive when we are looking for something we don't currently own. And Romans 1 tells us a deep-seated truth that is very, very much a part of what we understand in our hearts. And that is that God exists, we were created for Him in relationship with Him, and we know that we have not measured up, and we are at enmity with God. And so today, I would ask you, right now, in this moment, to sign the title of your heart over to Christ as your Lord and your Savior. The reality is that all of our hearts are unclean. And we need contrition, confession, repentance, and restoration. The agents of grace God uses to cleanse our hearts. And so up on screen behind me, we're going to have the first four verses of Psalm 51. And I'm going to ask all of you, just take a moment to respond with a time of confessional prayer. During this time, ask God to show you attitudes and actions that are sinful. Confess them and express your dependence upon Christ.